Hello, my name's Liz Hudswell, and I'm a member of the church family here. And our reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 24. And you'll find that on page 1177 of the church Bibles. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 24, page 1177. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fiercely, fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Thanks, Liz. The helmet of salvation. It might get a bit heavy. I'll take it off. I always feel like, um, Liz, I'm a bit rude to you because I see you at the park run, marshalling, where have you gone, and um, I'm always absolutely knackered and, you know, just head down. The park run's very well represented by people from above bar, isn't it? Every Saturday morning on the common, 9 a.m., Life is a battle, and so is the park run. Um, well, we're concluding our, um, our series in Paul's letter to the churches around Ephesus today that was delivered by Tychicus and that was written by narration by the Apostle Paul, as he says there, in chains. And the topic today is a mysterious topic. It's the topic of spiritual warfare. We're going to be talking about the devil. 
and the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. Now in Africa, in Latin America, Asia, talk of spiritual warfare isn't unusual. Here in the West, we can find it a foreign concept. If anyone would like to go further into this subject and read something that is biblical and sensible and balanced, um, there's a book that I've sort of skim-read by an African female scholar called Esther Akolaste, uh, and it's called Principalities, Powers, Principalities, and the Spirits, Biblical Realism in Africa and the West. It was only about four quid on Amazon Kindle, uh, if you wanted to go further. But one of the points she makes is that here in the West, we can become a little embarrassed by the language here at the end of Paul's letter. Talk of the devil and principalities and powers in heavenly realms and the military language that follows uh, can be a little embarrassing, perhaps. But what everybody seems to agree is that life is a battle. Life is hard. American... Pastor A.W. Tozer years ago said, life is much more a battleground than a playground. And the Apostle Paul would agree, wouldn't he? Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power and put on the full armor of God. There's a lot to say about these verses. I want to divide our time into three and look at who we fight, what we fight, and how we fight. So first of all, who, who we fight, verses 11 and 12. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil, the devil's schemes. And then verse, verse 12 particularly, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Now, that verse does not mean that we don't ever wrestle with flesh and blood. There is flesh and blood evil right now in Ukraine. There is flesh and blood evil right now in Afghanistan. Flesh and blood evil in Syria, in the genocides that happen off our TV screens in Myanmar, in the global sex trafficking operation there is flesh and blood evil here in Southampton. But behind the cruelty and slavery and greed and racism and war, this text tells us that spiritual forces are participating. There's an unseen world behind the flesh and blood is something that's not flesh and blood. And until we recognize this, we don't really recognize how sinister it is. In the West, everything has a natural cause and a scientific explanation. Cruelty and racism and crime are caused by bad psychological factors and sociological factors. And the Western mind is, we need to identify it scientifically and sociologically and psychology, psychologically, and then we can fix it. The West has given up its belief in good and evil. Instead, we talk about dysfunction and pathology, but that's wearing thin. Ethnic cleansing and holocaust and serial killing and institutional corruption in very many nations 
are not simply the result of psychological and sociological factors. Who's watched the movie Silence of the Lambs? Officer Starling goes to a cell and she hears what Hannibal Lecter has done. And she says, what happened to him to make him so twisted? And he heard her. And it's hard not to hear the voice of Anthony Hopkins here, but he says something like this. Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you, say, can you stand to say, I am evil? I am evil, Officer Starling. In the West, we struggle to account for the depth and the pervasiveness of evil. Though this week on the TV, I saw a survivor from Bucha, north of Kiev, saying that the atrocities committed were an otherworldly evil. The Bible doesn't have the same problem with evil that we do in the West. Evil is taken seriously. The Bible says that evil has come about from the free will of two created beings, angels and humans, who have fallen in their rebellion against God. And so sin and evil is in the heart of every single human being. Christianity says that sociological factors and psychological factors can exacerbate and shape this innate self-delusion that exists in us. But these factors don't create it, they just magnify it. And so behind the terrible evils in our world and in our souls are these rulers and authorities and powers of the dark world and the devil himself. The word diabolu in Greek, devil, means slanderer, it's a title. Another title is the Satan the adversary. When Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness, one of the things offered by the devil was all the kingdoms of the world. So the text recognizes there that the devil has dominion in the world. 1 John 5:19, the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. And his sway and dominion is exercised both among those who do not believe in him and those who do. In Ephesians 2, Paul has already referred to the prince of the power of the air. At the same time, of course, Jesus has come to destroy the works of the evil one. And because of the cross and the resurrection, Satan is a defeated foe, and he knows he is. But like a cornered wild animal, he's still deadly. So don't think to go near, because wounded though he is, he is seeking whom he may devour. And yet, he's also an angel of light, far more alluring and attractive than we give him credit for. Let me turn you again to verse 11, where it says, put on the full armor of God, which we'll look at later. It says, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
This is what we fight. We fight against the methodia ton diabolu, the methods of the devil. And in thinking and speaking about the methods of the devil, I want to draw on some of the great Christian thinkers that have written about it. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And in that book, he says that two schemes that the devil uses in particular are he wants us to underestimate him and he wants us to overestimate him. And he says this, the devils themselves are equally pleased with both errors. And they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Let's think about them. The devil wants us to underestimate him, but Paul writes here about rulers and authorities and powers. Why does he use such language? I think he's talking about the scale of them, the pervasiveness of them. Paul is saying to us, do not underestimate these things. A particular error here in the global north or in the west is we might put demons and the devils in the same category as UFOs or ghosts. And we're not helped by Hollywood depictions of the devil. We might start thinking the devil is Robert De Niro in Angel Heart or Elizabeth Hurley in the movie Bedazzled. Scripture, though, assumes belief in real personal evil. Next week, next Sunday evening is Easter Sunday evening. We're going to have a baptism. And in the early church, in a baptism, the candidates would always be asked, do you renounce the Satan and all his works? And only when they said, yes, we do, would they be, well, then, in that case, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we, we should not underestimate how, God, how Satan can actually take God's servants in the church and use them as his instruments. We shouldn't underestimate the savagery that the devil can inflict on churches, on institutions, on cultures, on nations, through his schemes. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. But also we must not overestimate him. Some people are obsessed with evil. Some Christians see a devil under every rock, a demon in every building. It's a particular error of the Christian South, says Emily Akalaste. But even here in the West, we've had witch hunts, terrible witch trials. 20 years ago, Christians were saying, J.K. Rowling is in league with the devil for writing Harry Potter. One thing I can say this morning, folks, is that Harry Potter is not your enemy. Uh, in fact, he may very well be your friend. If you sing a note into a, a grand piano, I'm told, if you sing a note, if you open up the grand piano and you sing, ah, a particular string will vibrate to your voice. In the same way, the devil moves to the notes that we already sing. The devil makes a flawed person worse, but he doesn't make a good man bad. Diabolo, slanderer, liar. The main way he works is through lies and slander. Tim Keller says two of the main ways that the devil lies are through temptation and accusation. 
In temptation, God, uh, Satan hides from you God's holiness. In accusation, he hides from you God's love. And I would add a third, and that is isolation. The devil wants to hide from you God's companionship, his friendship, and the friendship of other believers. He wants to say to you, you are on your own. You are the only one dealing with this. He wants to make you feel like you're on your own, isolated. In John Bunyan's great allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim's Progress is the second most read book in the history of the world. The Bible's the first. And in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, is often consoled and encouraged by his traveling companions. When he is assaulted and most vulnerable is when he's on his own in the slough of despond, in doubting castle, when he's on his own, isolated. These are some of the methodia ton diabolu, underestimation, overestimation, accusation, temptation, isolation. But the main thrust of the passage is in verses 13 to 20. And this is on how we fight. And there I see that we fight dependently, collectively, and both defensively and offensively. In verse 10, we're told, we're instructed, we're encouraged, be strong in the Lord. In verse 13, put on the full armor of God. This isn't a human armor. This isn't human equipment. This isn't human resources. Be strong in the Lord. Put on the armor of God. Our own resilience wears very thin. But Paul from verse 13 goes on to talk about the armor that we might wear. In the Old Testament, God himself is depicted as a warrior in armor, the Lord of hosts. And in Isaiah 59:17, he puts on righteousness as a breastplate. He wears the helmet of salvation on his head. So today, these weapons are his weapons that he shares with us as we go to war with the powers dependently in his strength. We let him do the heavy lifting as we bow before him in prayer, as Paul instructs at the end of the passage. So we fight dependently. We also fight collectively. We fight together. We might tend to individualize this passage as we do with many of the passages in the New Testament, but the, the, the letters are written to the whole church. Put on the armor, whole church. So we fight dependently and collectively. Roman soldiers were known, weren't they, for these huge long shields that they exercised in tortoise formation. They marched together. They extinguished the flaming darts of the enemy together. And so together we need to stand with shields held high. We fight together. We don't fight against each other. We stand shoulder to shoulder together as the church, as an army. When I lived in Thailand, um, I got into cycling. I hadn't really ridden a road bike before I lived in Thailand. 
Um, but uh, with some friends, I cycled a thousand kilometers. We jumped on a plane, we flew two hours, we put our tires in the sea in the south of Thailand, and we cycled all the way back to Chiang Mai. It was a thousand kilometers exactly. Couldn't have done it on, none of us could have done it on our own. We, we need a team. And in cycling, one of you needs to take the wind for a short time. And you can't do it for a long time, and you work as a team, you work in a peloton. And the front rider will ride, and he'll ride much harder than those coming behind. He takes the wind. And there is this rotation necessary when you're cycling a distance like that. And similarly, we need to, when we fight collectively, <laughs> sometimes, some people are taking on the wind and in the front, but they can't do that forever. There needs to be this, this team. And that's where being in a small group in a church is really key. Ideally, in a small group, in a home group or a small group, you can share your struggles and your battles, and you can receive that kind of support with people praying for you as they find out about your life, as you share with them battles you're facing at work and at home and so on. But we also fight both defensively and offensively. Here's the heart of the passage now. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take to uh, stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist. This is the first of six main pieces of a soldier's equipment. Some of these pieces are defensive, some of them are offensive. And Paul, of course, was very familiar with Roman soldiers. He says here he was chained to one as he was writing the letter. The belt of truth was, uh, the belt, sorry, of the Roman soldier was made of leather. It gathered his tunic together, it held his sword. So in a sense, it's it's an offensive weapon. As the Roman soldier buckled on his belt, it gave him a hidden confidence, a hidden strength. And the Christian's belt is truth. Obviously, to be deceitful and to resort to intrigue and manipulation and scheming is to play the devil's game. And we can't beat him at his own game. But what the devil hates is transparent truth. The devil loves darkness, but light and truth cause him to flee. And in that sense, this belt is an offensive weapon. The second item is this breastplate of righteousness. Some people reflecting on this passage have noted that there is protection for a Christian's heart and his torso, but not for his back, so don't turn your back. In Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian reached the Valley of Humiliation, he saw the foul fiend coming to meet him, whose name was Apollyon, another name for adversary. And Christian considered that he had no armor for his back, says John Bunyan. So he thought, if I turn my back on him, I might give him a greater advantage, and he might pierce me to death with his darts. And therefore, Christian stood his ground. That's a great piece of uh, Puritan spirituality and counsel. It's a kind of bad example of 
Bible interpretation because actually the Roman breastplate did cover the back, covered all the vital organs. And the breastplate of righteousness is the spiritual protection that we have given through the righteous relationship that we now have. Jesus Christ makes us righteous. That's what the cross is all about. His righteousness for our unrighteousness. We're clothed in his righteousness, not ours. And therefore we stand accepted, not condemned. When the slanderer comes, when the accuser comes, I can say there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that's an essential piece of equipment when we fight this battle and when Satan accuses us. Paul then goes on to talk about the boots. Verse 15, with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The boots worn by a Roman soldier were made of leather and the toes were left free. But the boots equipped the Roman soldier for long marches and solid stances as he stood to fight. The Christian's boots are the equipment of the gospel of peace. We need always to be ready to bear witness to Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace, God's peacemaker. Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news and who publishes peace. And as his church, we need our gospel boots strapped so we can offensively take the gospel of peace out to the nations that are in darkness. We bring the kingdom of light into areas of darkness as we herald the Prince of Peace. The fourth equipment is the shield, the shield of faith, verse 16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Roman shields were much bigger than Saxon shields. Saxon shields were round, Roman shields called the scutum were massive, long shields, 1.2 meters long, 57 centimeters wide, designed to put out dangerous incendiary missiles. The devil wants to load his missiles at the church. He wants to accuse people. He wants to tempt people. He wants to isolate people. But there is a shield by which we can quench these darts, and that's the shield of faith. God is a shield to all those who take refuge in him, and it's by faith in him and trust in him that we flee to him in times of trouble, and we have this shield, this shield of faith. Paul then talks about the helmet, verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and then the sword of the Spirit. The Roman soldier's helmet was a hardy piece of equipment made of bronze or iron. I found that heavy enough to put on. Imagine putting a bronze or iron helmet on and marching in it and fighting in it. Nothing short of an axe could pierce this helmet. Our helmet, the helmet of salvation, is the assurance of our past, present, and future rescue by Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins that he's already talked about in chapter one. 
the adoption into his family that he's already talked about, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the assurance of future resurrection and glory. These are our helmet. God's saving power protects our heads and our minds as we fight this good fight. The final weapon is the sword, the offensive weapon. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Still today, God's sword, God's word, can cut through people's defenses. It can prick their consciences. It can stab people spiritually awake who've been dead. That's the amazing thing about preaching and teaching God's word. That can happen. Pray for it to happen every Sunday. Every time we gather here to pray, we're praying for that to happen. American evangelist Dwight Moody described a mutilated Bible with passages taken out as a broken sword. Let's not break the sword. The word of God is described elsewhere in the Bible as a double-edged sword. It's a powerful, powerful weapon. Well, my time is running out. In verses 18 to 20, Paul adds prayer as another offensive weapon. Pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people and pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in change and pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So scripture and prayer are the two chief weapons that the Spirit puts in our hands to go on the offensive. And these last few words in the letter to the Ephesians remind us that we need to pray for our church leaders, for our elders, for our ministry leaders, because Satan focuses his attacks and he hones his methods of accusation and temptation and isolation on church leaders particularly. We need to stand and pray for and with our church leaders. So in conclusion, who do we fight? We fight against spiritual powers behind the flesh and blood manifestations of evil. What do we fight? We fight against an enemy who uses schemes and methods that include accusation, temptation, isolation, underestimation, overestimation. How do we fight? We fight with this full armor of God, with both defensive weapons like the helmet and the shield and offensive weapons that include praying in the spirit with perseverance. Ruth is now gonna come and share about a book that will help us specifically pray for the church.